Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for The Zest comes from People's Gas, delivering clean, efficient, and affordable natural gas for cooking at home with precise temperature control. More at floridasenergy.com. We like to say that instead we should think about Miami and Tampa as as sandwich siblings that both developed uh, under different kinds of circumstances and they both are beloved by their constituencies. And in many ways, I think that that's part of our identity as Cuban Americans. I'm Delia Colon and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and Southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. Today, we're sharing two interviews from our friends over at Florida Matters. First, we'll dig into the history of the Cuban sandwich. Then we'll hear about some of Florida's lesser-known Cuban contributions. Let's start with a classic, the Cuban sandwich. A soon-to-be-released book will explore its history and popularity around the world. University of South Florida professor Barbara Cruz is one of the book's co-authors. She was born in Cuba, and she says the Cuban sandwich has always been part of her life. Here's Barbara's conversation with Florida Matters host Bradley George. Starting off, Barbara, just tell me what was the spark of, of your involvement in this project, the Cuban sandwich book with, uh, with Jeff and Andy? Andy Hughes and I actually were part of a faculty development trip to Oviedo, Spain, sister city with Tampa, in the area known as Asturias in Spain. And when we were on that trip, it became abundantly clear to us that both of us were a bit food obsessed. And as we bonded over Spanish tapas and started talking about Cuban food and Tampa, we knew that at some point we were going to do a project together. And so when he approached me in 2019 about the Cuban sandwich history, we wondered if there would be enough information, you know, that would comprise a whole book. And not only were we delighted to find out that that was the case, um, there's actually more that we're probably going to have to cut out from our book. Now, Andy is a historian and he's an archivist and knows Tampa's history like few others. And in the case of Jeff, he is a restaurant marketer, but he's also a food writer, a bloggist. And in my case, I'm a teacher educator, but I am Cuban American. I was born on the island and came to the United States as a young child. And the three of us together are all food obsessives, all are sandwich, Cuban sandwich aficionados. And so together, we each bring a different kind of a perspective to this project that's been a lot of fun. So tell me a little bit more about your your perspective as as an academic and also, as you said, as a Cuban-American who was born on the island. Sure. So, you know, the thing with the Cuban sandwich, I've, I can't tell you how many Cuban sandwiches I've had over the course of my lifetime. I, I, I couldn't even proffer a guess. However, I can't tell you where I've never had a Cuban sandwich, and that has been at home. The Cuban sandwich is not something that you have, for the most part, at home. You go out into the community. You go out into your neighborhood, into your culture. You have it standing up at a sidewalk cafe, at a ventanita. You know, ventana is the Spanish word for 
window. So a ventanita is a little window. And you would have it there or you would pick one up on your way back to work or to school. But at home, my sister and I don't really remember having a Cuban sandwich at home. Maybe once or twice there was a piece of Cuban bread left over with some deli meats in the fridge. My mom would put it in a skillet and then would get another heavy skillet to press on top of it to approximate the plancha, the iron, the griddle, the hot griddle that would press the sandwich. But it's definitely an iconic Cuban dish that you know everyone associates with Cuban culture. I can tell you that I have been in disparate places such as Huntington, West Virginia, found a Cuban sandwich. London, England, found a Cuban sandwich where it had a label that said Cuban sandwich, but right underneath it, the tagline was an American classic. Not a Cuban classic, an American classic. Have been to Riga, Latvia in Eastern Europe and came upon a Cuban bar and grill. And sure enough, they had a Cuban sandwich. Now, Many of these sandwiches are not necessarily what we would recognize as such because they would have some interesting additions, but they were delicious all the same. And I think that that's one of the the beautiful things about this sandwich. It's iconic. And at the same time, it's open to interpretation by lots of different people. I'm just thinking about when in my life I first heard of Cuban sandwiches and it was growing up in a small town in North Carolina where we had a Winn-Dixie, which is a Florida-based supermarket chain, and they used to be all over North Carolina. And the deli used to sell Cuban sandwiches. And in small town North Carolina in the late 80s and early 1990s, it was seen maybe as a little bit of a exotic delicacy because we didn't have much food beyond uh, chain restaurants and, and Greasy Spoon Meat and Three restaurants. Absolutely. And we found actually the, the boozy pig in Tampa has a connection to North Carolina because the uncle of the owner has a restaurant outside of Asheville where they make Cuban food and specifically the Cuban sandwich. So there might be a North Carolina Tampa connection. I don't know. Yeah. I, I want to get back to what you said about this it being something that you wouldn't necessarily have at home because I think maybe it gets to kind of the uniqueness of the Cuban sandwich and that something that it's something that you would find in a restaurant. It's not, it's not necessarily a recipe that anybody might make at home because kind of the key is, is, is having it pressed. And unless you have a panini press or something that can kind of give it that, that feel, it's not, uh, it's not an easy dish to make, to make in your own kitchen. I think that that's part of it. Um, and a true purist would not want a panini press. They wouldn't want any kind of ridges or any kind of indentations in the bread. They would want complete contact with the griddle. Um, so I think that that's part of it. I think that also the different components, uh, the very best Cuban sandwiches in the restaurants, they make, they'll roast their own pork, for example. Um, some of the real high-end sandwiches, they might even make their own pickles or their own mustard even. So we've got those components as well, that not always are all of those ingredients, you know, at home. And of course, you have to have really high quality Cuban bread as well. You mentioned that the three of you have just found so much research and history and background about the Cuban sandwich. What have you discovered that surprised you? Well, there are several, many things actually that have surprised me personally. Uh, first of all, the fact that 
it does have its origins in Cuba. Andy points out that on many of the menus that we have from the late 1800s, for example, when we see the advent of the mixto, the mixed sandwich, that was a big thing. That was a big step forward in the innovation known as the sandwich. So in other words, up to that time, it was considered fairly unusual to have mixed meats or, or meat and cheese you know, on a sandwich. And even today, if you go to a Cuban restaurant, you can order un pan con bistec, right? A, a, a steak sandwich. Un pan con lechon, a pork sandwich. And that was the case back then. But what starts happening is that you start having a mix of meats with cheese. And then that's really where it starts to develop. But the interesting thing too, is that at the very beginning of its history, it was also considered a very high-end food. It was considered very special. It was con- it was served at weddings, for example. Um, it was served in high-end restaurants where the genteel, you know, society would come after the theater, for example, to have uh, a sandwich. We have stories, newspaper accounts journal entries of people in Havana going to the theater, going to a casino, going to the Tropicana. And after the soirees, on their way home, they would stop somewhere to have a Cuban sandwich or a medianoche, obviously midnight in Spanish, and probably referring to the time of of day or night that they were having it. Um, And it was also a pressed sandwich with many of the same ingredients, but the bread was essentially different. It was sweeter, softer, uh, eggier, actually. It had egg in it. And so all of that was real interesting to me. Uh, Also, the fact that once Cubans made it to the U.S., how the sandwich morphed again. And there we see a little bit of a difference in the Miami Cuban sandwich and the Tampa Cuban sandwich. And of course, there's the great battle between South Florida and Tampa over Cuban sandwiches and which one's the best, which we will we will pass no judgment on here since this program will reach people in both places. Just to just, just to finish up here, um, you, you you talked a little bit about the reach of the Cuban sandwich and finding it in places like Latvia and West Virginia. As you've learned more about the history of the Cuban sandwich, how has it made you reflect on your identity as a as a Cuban American? You know, one of the things that I have really enjoyed in this analysis of the Cuban sandwich is how for millennia, human beings have had to adapt as they moved around the world, as they came across new foodstuffs, as tastes changed, as cultures collided, and they made something new out of those circumstances. I think in many ways, that certainly happened to the Cuban sandwich. And I agree with you, Bradley. We dispel that debate between Miami and Tampa. And we like to say that rather than ask the question of which one came first or which one is more authentic and and ultimately which one is better, we like to say that instead we should think about Miami and Tampa as, as sandwich siblings, that both developed uh, under different kinds of circumstances, and they both are beloved 
by their constituencies. And in many ways, I think that that's part of our identity as Cuban Americans. There have been lots of writings, academic, in the academic press in particular, about living a life on the hyphen and what it means to be an immigrant American. Certainly for me as a Cuban American, I have retained many of my cultural, historical, linguistic traditions, but at the same time have fully embraced what our country, the United States, has to offer. And I think that the Cuban sandwich has done the same thing in many ways. Barbara Cruz is a professor of social science education at the University of South Florida. She's also co-author of the forthcoming book, The Cuban Sandwich, A History in Layers. So we've heard about the Cuban sandwich, but what other foods did Tampa's early Cuban residents bring with them? For answers, we turn to Andy Hughes. He's a librarian and archivist at the University of South Florida and an expert on Tampa food history. He's also been a past Zest guest and we'll link to that conversation in the show notes. But for now, here's Andy speaking with Florida Matters host, Bradley George. So we wanted to talk to you about the history of Hispanic food in general in Tampa. I know you're involved with this this Cuban sandwich book that's coming out uh, next year, but I know you also have done a lot of research uh, in your work at USF about food in Tampa through the years. And just to start off, when we talk about Hispanic food in Tampa, particularly around the time of Tampa's founding in the 1800s, 1880s, 1890s, what are we talking about specifically? Well, really overwhelmingly, we're talking about Cuban food. So there was a mix of, of immigrants in Ybor City, of course, and in Tampa. So, you know, most famously Spanish, Cuban, Italian. But the Cubans were really the ones who kind of set the tone for, for Ybor City, West Tampa, for those, the, you know, the Latin enclaves here. Um, so they were the, the predominant group. And they were the ones who had molded the cigar industry into what it was. So all the kind of beats of life, you know, were, um, it was all modeled around Havana, basically. So from the cafes to the, you know, the cigar factories, everything was kind of a, a replication of, of Havana. So that's why, like, you know, the, the food, everything, you know, the culture really emanated from Havana, um, I, I would say predominantly. And then, you know, you have like Italians, for example. Not many Italian restaurants really stuck around in the early days for very long. A lot of Italians were really eating at home. Couldn't even afford to, to go out to eat if they wanted to. You know, the first generation immigrants anyway. But then, you know, over time you had Italian specialties being prepared in other Latin places. Like the Colombia, for example, up until the 1980s had a whole you know, Italian section of their menu to kind of, you know, please that, you know, that clientele. So, and then, you know, you have the Spanish influence as well, but really, you know, I would say those are all accessories to the the mainstream, you know, Cuban culture that, like I said, really set the tone. So that Cuban culture that, that was in Tampa in the late 1800s, early 1900s, what kind of cuisine are we talking about? How is, is it different from what we know as, as Cuban cuisine today? Yeah, well, really, a lot of the menu um, was very similar to a lot of the things today, but food and the food industries changed so much that those dishes often look a lot different than they did. 
So, for example, chicken yellow rice, I think, is a great example of something that would have been very, very, very simple in, say, 1900. Whereas today, there's a lot more processed ingredients available, kind of pre-bagged, you know, chicken with the saffron supposedly in there. So, um, and then chickens have changed an awful lot, too. So, just the way, like, when I talk to people about making arroz con pollo, you know, I suggest you know, cutting down on the amount of chicken because the chicken pieces are so huge today, you know, and, and back in the day they were much smaller. And so today, you know, you're, you're overcooking your rice so that you can cook these giant pieces of chicken. And then it's like the whole point of the dish is kind of lost if you're eating mushy rice, at least, uh, you know, for, for people who really like um, arroz con pollo. So I think that's a, like a, a really good example of a dish that, uh, you know, if you just see it on a menu, it looks like it's, it's always been the same thing, but it's very, very different over time, you know. And like early on, you know, if you were using a fat, you'd probably use olive oil if you could. Later on, places like the Colombia are using bacon, you know, in it um, and the bacon grease as the fat. So, you know, and then now I would wager the Colombia no longer uses bacon, you know, in the in their, you know, chicken yellow rice. So these things are always changing. You know, and that's uh, any of the dishes we could talk about there. They've all un- undergone a lot of changes, I think. Were the ingredients, you know, the chicken, the rice, the beans, things like that, were those easy to come by in the early days of Tampa? Did they have to be imported from Havana? Were they grown locally? Yeah, no, everything had to be imported. But there was already a critical mass. I mean, the moment Ybor City, you know, is established, then you have importers opening up shop. And you have, uh, you know, a lot of grocers and things like that, and they all need to to carry these ingredients. So, yeah, that changed really quickly. And, you know, by the time of the, the 1900s, the 1900s, you, had, you know, people came from Cuba and it's like, couldn't believe, you know, that all the fruits were available here, everything. So, yeah, Tampa really became like an annex of, of Cuba. What artifacts what, what what items have you found from the early days of Tampa in your research regarding Cuban cuisine well you know what's interesting about it is i think first of all you know Tampa was a typical southern town you know and fairly closed minded when it came to their neighbors and so when the immigrants first came here there was a lot of people saying that europe had just vomited forth its most like malignant you know, people, and they're just vomited on our shores, you know, and what are we going to do with all these Spanish-speaking people now? But that changed, and it changed really quickly, and I think, you know, the food led the way. So by, you know, that quote that I talked about, about the, you know, vomiting thing came from like 1887, I believe. Well, by the time of 1900, people are talking about taking rides through town and their coaches and stopping at Spanish places and eating, you know, at these, uh, these places as, um, you know, slumming it became a very popular activity where upper class people will go to like working class enclaves and sometimes get drunk, sometimes help people, sometimes just eat. Um, so that became like part of the thing here. You know, uh, when Tampa and Ebor, when Ebor was first established, it was about two miles from Tampa. So it was just a really quick streetcar ride or a jaunt in your carriage to go over there. So it was kind of like an early form of culinary tourism here in Tampa where people could leave Tampa and all that kind of Southern food and things and go into a whole new world where there's cafe con leche. There's all these other dishes um, and a whole new kind of culinary universe to explore. 
So it became instantly like really popular for that reason. And so a lot of people in Tampa saw the virtues of Latin culture and that these are not unrefined people. You know, um, a lot of them, you know, were better educated than the people who were already here in Tampa. So how did the face and the taste of Cuban cuisine, Hispanic cuisine, Latin American cuisine, whatever we want to call it, start to change as Tampa grew, as especially I'm thinking, you know, after World War Two, as, as people started moving into Florida from other parts of the country and maybe bringing their own uh, food foodways with them? Yeah, and World War Two was huge because, I mean, how many tens of thousands of GIs served in Florida at some point or were shipped out from Florida or did training here or whatever. And then you have all the war workers, you know, a lot of women coming from all over the the country to uh, work in shipbuilding or whatever was going on, you know, all kinds of different industries here. So all those people passing through were all exposed to this, you know, because by that time it was really a part of mainstream Tampa culture. You know, um, even, you know, our drugstores all carried Cuban sandwiches by the 1930s. I'm not saying that they were very good, but they made them. So, yeah, that, that was huge. And after World War II, of course, you've got a huge influx of new residents coming in. A lot of the result of seeing Florida for the first time during the war. The people, the, the arrivals came to a place where the Cuban sandwich was already a vernacular thing. It was just everywhere. So, it, you know, it uh, at that point, you didn't have to drive to Ybor anymore to go to a good Spanish restaurant. There was a bunch downtown as well. So it was definitely fully part of the mainstream, you know, when it comes to like the the culinary culture here in Tampa by the 1940s and 50s. You mentioned new arrivals, and I'm thinking of the the rise of the Cuban exile community, particularly in South Florida uh, after the revolution there. How has the growth of the Cuban community in South Florida versus this long established Cuban community here in the Tampa Bay region. How are the culinary traditions different? Right. There are a lot of contrasts, you know, um, but like, you know, and I, a lot of times, especially in the context of the Cuban sandwich people, it's like an us versus them thing is Tampa versus Miami. And I think really the thing that I really want to emphasize is they all come from the same place. They're all part of the same family tree. I want to move on from Cuban food in a minute, but what are some other Cuban staples that have become part of culinary life here in, in, in Tampa? If the Cuban sandwich is kind of like the answer to like fast food or a portable thing, the complete opposite would be crab enchilado, crab enchilado, chila, chilao. Everyone has each ethnic group had a different slang term for it, but they all ate, they were all eating the same thing. And you know, essentially, it's a it's a repurposed Cuban dish. So an enchilado, you know, is is typically a tomato based sauce that you have with shrimp, you know, or crab or something like that. But it really became big. Crab became the, the main thing here because blue crabs were so abundant. Um, so it was a very popular pastime to go to the beach, go to the causeway, try to catch as many blue crabs as you could, and then make a fire on the beach when that was still allowed. Um, and you could boil up your crabs in the sauce. You'd bring the sauce already prepped or you'd throw it together on site, which, you know, usually a very pretty simple tomato sauce, but on the spicy side, there often be a little bit of spice added to it. And then what made it even more Tampa was it was served over macaroni, which is really spaghetti, but all pasta was known as macaroni, like in the thirties, but, you know, made here by, by our Italian 
population. So it became a very popular dish to eat like on the beach or you would take, you know, all the crabs home and cook them up. But it was also a notoriously messy dish because, you know, after you clean your crabs out, you put the whole crabs in there and then you take it out and, you know, kind of suck the meat out, break the, the claws. And then, you know, every time you're snapping a claw or something, the sauce is flying everywhere. So it was not an indoor dish. You know, it was something that you ate on the beach or you ate at a picnic table in the backyard, often with like newspapers strewn over it, kind of like with a crab boil or something. So you could throw the detritus uh, on the paper and just wad it all up at the end to clean up. So, and also you would you often eat it in your bathing suit, you know, so you won't get all your clothes messed up. We've talked a lot about Cuban food, but, you know, I drive around Tampa. I see Colombian restaurants. I see Venezuelan restaurants. I see Honduran restaurants. I see Peruvian restaurants. How has the proliferation of these these other uh, Hispanic Latino communities in the Tampa Bay region kind of changed the the food scene here? I think it's it's made a profound change. I've fallen hard for Colombian food myself. There's a lot of similarities, of course, often across Latin American cuisine. But I think what it's really done is served notice to the older restaurants that there's kind of a new generation that's willing to try really hard. And I think um, some of the Cuban, you know, the older Cuban restaurants in town have been, you know, rested on their laurels to some extent. And now you've got, you know, some really uh, a few extraordinary, I think, Colombian restaurants that are just awesome, that are serving very much blue collar food, but it's it's done in a, a real purposeful way. So I think it, it definitely shakes things up and it gives diners more options. So, yeah, I think it changes the dynamic a lot just because it's, it's going to make it makes it much more competitive, you know, and it's it's filled in a lot of spaces where the Cuban restaurants have kind of gone by the wayside, at least a lot of the, you know, the old ones and kind of the family run places. So that actually leads me to my next question. I was going to ask you if you had any suggestions for listeners for places to try uh, here in Tampa. um, I mean, of course, you can't get around the Columbia restaurant. I think that's, you know, a uh, the building is historic. Some of the recipes are historic. So, yeah, I think that's always a, a good bet. Um, but then, you know, I really like the blue-collar places, too. I, I love, um, you know, Arco Iris is, uh, is a big favorite. And then, of course, you know, La Terracita, you know, some people may call it the, like the lowest common denominator, but I think – that's a great low lowest common denominator. Like, you know, if that's the bedrock, you know, cheap Cuban cuisine, that's, that's pretty darn good. You know, um, especially like when I was in college, it was, uh, it was a mainstay. You could get two, two meals out of one, <laughs> uh, one plate sometimes. So, so yeah, I think all those places are really good. Um, and then there's some places that are sort of reinventing some old classics. I think the boozy pig is doing a really good job. La Segunda, bakery of course and their their cafes are really good too uh they have one in um on kennedy and one in saint pete coming up so um and i think they've really they got a fabulous sandwich there too um and they're also doing the medianoche sandwich which is not as easy to find around here in tampa but there's a lot of other places i mean you could go with you know the fidos you could go with um you know brocados it all really depends on what mood you're in you know and uh and how hungry you are Great. Well, Andy, I think that's it for my questions. Anything else uh, you want to add? Anything I didn't ask you about that uh, you think I should add? No, there. I mean, there's so much to explore. You know, you've got devil crabs, you know, you've got other favorites like Picadillo and, and all these other, you know, Palomia, and they all have, you know, a story. And, you know, one thing that really disappoints me often about kind of the, 
the food scene is that, you know, recipes become like this, you know, this thing of like, like that's your end point, you know? And I think the recipes are the starting point to really explore where they came from. You know, you have to really look at human and physical geography and all these other things. And uh, so I think that, you know, when you take something like a Cuban sandwich and you reduce it to four ingredients, you know, as like, if you look it up on the food network, that's most of the recipes. It's just like ham, pork, bread. It's like, wow, that is radically reductive. And so I would suggest that there's, there's a whole, there's much more story to tell and that the, the recipes are really just the tip of the iceberg. That was Andy Hughes, librarian and archivist at the University of South Florida, speaking with Florida Matters host Bradley George, along with USF professor Barbara Cruz and food writer Jeff Houck, who, by the way, has also been on The Zest and is hilarious. Andy is the co-author of the upcoming book, The Cuban Sandwich, A History in Layers. By the way, we've got lots of great Cuban recipes on our website, including the Columbia Restaurant's famous original Cuban sandwich and to wash it down, cafe con leche, of course. Search for those recipes on our website, thezestpodcast.com. I'm Delia Colon. The conversations we just heard were produced by Denora Prevost. We also had help this week from Chandler Balcom, Mark Hayes, and Lily Tyson. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media, copyright 2021.